Welcome to episode four of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today's topic is From Brain to Bookstore or the actual publishing part of, <laughs> of publishing. Because uh, before we've discussed, um, you know, writing and, and editing and representation and submission, but now we get to the actual nitty-gritty, the physical aspects of what happens after your book gets acquired. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is really fascinating because... I'm a person who's always loved books. I've always been a reader. I've always been a writer. They've always been a huge part of my life. But quite literally, until I started working in the publishing industry, I really had no idea how books were made. It's just kind of like they just magically appeared on my bookshelves (laughs) or at the bookstore or the library. And I would just pick them up and they would already be fully fully formed. And, uh, you know, I I never gave any bit of thought to the many, many, many people, um, involved in the process and the time that it takes and all the steps that it goes through. So if you're anything like me, um, this should be some pretty exciting stuff because, uh, it's something that I never thought about until I started actually working in the industry. What do you mean? The book fairy just doesn't put them on the shelves. (laughs) I mean, that's what I used to think, but apparently (laughs) there's a lot of people involved that put a lot of hours into making books happen. Uh, who knew, right? I, I, I mean, I was like you when I was a kid, I didn't think about the process. I mean, it's a product. If you think about it, a book is a product. Um, it's an art product, like any, like, um, you know, piece of art, you know, like a print of a piece of art or something like that. It's a product. And, um, so there's obviously going to be production aspects to that. So it, it, but I didn't think about that. And I, you know, honestly thought it was a book fairy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so let's just, uh, sorry. So last week we discussed, we, uh, covered contracts, Mm -hmm. um, which would talk a little bit about the editing, um, the editing process, not necessarily the content of the editing, because obviously that will be different from book to book, um, editor to editor and author to author. Um, but just the sort of different types of editing that you would come across in the publishing process. I think we could probably start there. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, this is still kind of the creative side of the publishing business. So, um, the sort of two big things your acquiring editor will do for you or two types of editing are structural edits or developmental edits or, and line edits. Mm -hmm. Uh, you'll notice what's not included are copy, copy edits, edits. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, uh, Kelly, why don't you go ahead and, and talk a little bit maybe about the difference between structural or developmental editing and line editing? Sure. Um, I think it's really, it's all in the name, you know, structural editing or developmental editing is big picture editing. Uh, it's going to take a look at your book as a whole and go through and find the ways to tighten the plot, to enrich the character development, to make all the pieces fit together 
as best they can. Um, it's really all about the big picture. It's all about stepping back and looking at your book as a whole. Whereas line editing, like it sounds, um, is a much more involved, intricate process. You're kind of going through the manuscript line by line, um, checking for, you know, sentence structures, checking for the flow of the words, checking for um, little minute details present on a line by line basis, uh, and to see whether or not that writing is, um, as it should be is, you know, if you could pull things out, if you could add more that would, um, you know, sort of illuminate the point that you're trying to make or enhance that scene. Um, so the really, the easiest way to think about it is that structural editing is big picture stuff and line editing is really detailed stuff. Yeah. Um, structural edits or developmental edits, this is Usually, you know, you'll have more than one editorial letter over the course of the time, you know, after you sign the contract and before you, your manuscript is accepted. Um, the first editorial letter is actually probably going to be the shortest because it's covering the biggest amount of, covering the biggest amount of space, if, if you want to put it that way, story space, because the structural edits will cover characterization. Uh, on a macro level, you know, uh, what is the character's journey? Um, it, it, you know, what we, what we can do to strengthen the character's emotional journey. Uh, for example, when I got my first editorial letter, uh, on my project, um, it wasn't very long. It was about four pages. Um, and, you know, talked, you know, of course, like the first page is always going to be about, oh, I love this about your manuscript. And, <laughs> You know, you always you want to do that. The, com- the compliments. <laughs> yes. Um, or as my friend likes to call it, a uh, shit sandwich, where <laughs> you begin with something really nice, mm-hmm. then you put all of the critique in the middle, and then you end with something really nice again. Um, but, you know, it wasn't very long. That first editorial letter really sort of talked about some kind of big pl- pacing issues. You know, so, the, you know, she's like, oh, I think. The, the beginning drags on too long. If mm-hmm. we can, you know, re- cut that by as much as possible, cut out this storyline, this subplot, because it doesn't actually go anywhere. Um, and then the second, and then the other part was the ending, which is, you know, and my editor didn't give me specific suggestions, but she was just sort of like, I think the ending needs to be stronger. I think it needs to be more earned. Um, and she didn't give me any specifics or anything like that. And we got on the phone call on a phone call and we just sort of brainstormed it out about what ideas or what we could do to make the ending more, have more emotional impact. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the developmental side of things. Um, it will be the shortest, but we'll actually probably call for the most amount of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you're, you're in, in some cases, you know, rehauling your entire manuscript. <laughs> Yeah. You know, before you can get down and really fix those details, um, you have to make sure that the structure, um, is going to stand that your, your book can support itself before you really go in there and start, you know, um, tinkering with some of the more delicate aspects, you know? So this is really, um, the, the manual labor of the editing process. Uh, I'll put it this way out. So my first editorial letter was only four pages, like I said, and I, and I told you, as I said, it, it didn't seem 
Like it would be that much work because, you know, she's like, oh, we need to shorten the beginning. The middle, she left more or less untouched. Uh, the middle of my book actually didn't change very much at all from kind of the very, very first draft that I did NaNoWriMo to the final draft that I turned in. Um, but the ending. <laughs> so as I was kind of going through my book, you know, and I cut out probably about 8,500 words from the beginning, mm-hmm. um, and tightened that up and sort of tightened up, um, some of the language in the middle a little bit. And by the time I got to the end, I, one small suggestion that I had made to my editor over the phone when we were brainstorming about death being more metaphorical and not quite so literal in, in my book made me realize I kind of had to write the entire ending from scratch. Now, I had a week left. <laughs> so I just I just did it. I just I literally threw out the last act of my book and wrote it from scratch. I wrote thirty five thousand words in seven days. <laughs> so it was a lot of work. Um, but I think ultimately it made my book stronger and my editor did agree with me and she's like, Oh, this is really great. And so the second pass that I got from her was more line edits. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is where I got comments on the manuscript itself as opposed to just sort of a, a, you know, a word document kind of talking about general things. Now I got a copy of my actual manuscript with like, um, word comments on them, Mm -hmm. you know, pointing out kind of either internal inconsistencies or maybe pointing out you used eyes three times Mm -hmm. on the same page or, you know, little things you don't necessarily notice when you, if you're typing on the computer, uh, you know, so you're cleaning up the diction at that point. Um, you're cleaning up some of the craft issues on a sentence level. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to make the sentences make more sense. Um, sometimes my editor kind of would circle words and would, would ask, you know, or would sort of point out that the phrasing of this is slightly awkward or, um, you know, so that's the line editing stage of of a manuscript. Mm-hmm. And even though in that case, your editorial letter may be like 25 pages long, because, but it's specific. It's, it's calling out specific lines. Yes. This line on this page, you know, that line on that page. Mm-hmm. And, you know, clearing up some plot consistencies or inconsistencies or character inconsistencies. Sometimes when I was line editing, now as an editor, I don't like to line edit all that much because I don't want to step on an author's writing style. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to Im- impinge upon their voice. Um, but sometimes for clarity's sake or for strength's sake, I would, you know, highlight a paragraph and suggest moving this paragraph three paragraphs up. Right. Because then it's... it would make whatever follows stronger or clearer or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I was really old fashioned. I did this all by hand. By hand. <laughs> I like to line at it by hand too, actually. It's hard because I feel like now... You know, it's very, you're not going to print the manuscript, do it by hand, and then mail that manuscript to the author. So nine times out of ten, even if you print it out and do it by hand, you still end up typing something to send to the author. Um, But I also prefer to line edit by hand. I think it's, I don't know, it's just more immediate for me somehow. Yeah, I I, I think it's more immediate. And at least for me, I'm, I'm very tactile 
when it comes to to working on things. So I like to print it out. I like to spread the manuscript out and sort of, you know, and so I'm better able to refer to parts later or earlier in the manuscript. Right. Um, and I actually mailed the manuscript to my authors. Do you really? <laughs> I, I did. Yeah. I would write comments in the margins. I mean, this is actually why they tell you to double space your manuscript, by the way. <laughs> so that there's space. So that there is space for your editor with her red pencil to go in and mark things up. Um, and that's why you have inch margins and double spacing. So it's actually space for people to scribble in. And that's just a holdover from when people edit it by hand. Mm -hmm. And there's still people who edit by hand, like yours truly. And I'm not even that old, okay? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I just turned 30 this year, so I'm not that old. Um, but I did, I, you know, I would actually tab each page um, that had a comment on it or kind mm -hmm. of like the little stickies. I would kind of flag that. I would make myself a photocopy and then mail the original off to my author. Wow. Um, yeah, I, you know, it was so much cause gosh, the, the whole idea of transferring all those notes to yes. the word program was just too much. And yeah, <laughs> I just, like, I just worked on my first, um, edit where I did the whole thing on the computer. I did not print a manuscript and, and do it in the margins. Um, and I was able to do that because it was a much smaller project. It was a nonfiction and it was, um, you know, only 50 pages or so. And so I, it felt doable. It felt manageable to do it that way. But I did, I did miss something, you know, by not having that, that tactile physical, um, interaction with the, you know, with the paper and the pen and the, you know, and I always use, I, I always do use red. Do you always use red when you do it? Yeah. I use yeah. red. I, use red. It, it's, I am old fashioned. Some you know. stereotypes, you know, are, are classic for a reason. You yes. have to have the blood on the page, yes. which will only get worse when it becomes copy editing time. Yes. We'll get to copy edits in a bit. Uh, in a bit. So I got my line edits back from my editor and she had sent it to me in word with, you know, the track changes marked mm -hmm. up. I printed it out. <laughs> I know it didn't save any paper because I, I ended up printing it out. I, uh, ended up making comments on the text myself mm -hmm. in red pen and also the reason editors use red pen, this is, you know, going back to the old days, is that it just, it stands out easier. Oh, yeah. The text, it's printed out in black and white, so red is going to stand out. Mm -hmm. um, so that's generally what happens in, in the line editing start. And, um, you know, you may do this a couple of times. Yes. I, yeah. I only had two editorial passes with my editor, but some people can have three, four, five eight, 10, you know, mm -hmm. it, it all depends again on the editor's editorial style and honestly, whether or not, or how well the author is able to revise. Um, because, you know, sometimes they go through everything and they change everything on a surface level. Right. But it's not, there's no deeper, um, Yeah. Yeah, it's it's basically you know you're sh you're just painting giving a house a new coat of paint when you really need to shore up the foundations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you just 
I feel like you are killing it with the metaphors lately. And that's usually <laughs> my bit, but it's like my brain just will not function. Oh my God. You know, you've got a 20 month old. I know for those of you who don't have kids, when you have a kid, if you have a kid, your brain just like falls out of your head. And I don't know, I keep waiting for it to crawl back to me, but, (laughs) um, but nice metaphor. It is like a house getting a new coat of paint. And when you really, what you really need to do is like re-insulate the wall. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it's a lot, it's a lot more work. Um, so yeah, it's not enough to just kind of go back and, and fix one or two things without really looking at how it affects your manuscript as a whole, because it's kind of the butter of the butterfly effect too. If you change one part of your manuscript, you have to look and see, does that have a ripple effect on the rest of my manuscript? Are there other things that I'm going to go need to go and change now as a result of what I changed in this one spot? Yes, this is sometimes it's, you know, it's like how a small earthquake on one side of the world can cause a tsunami on Uh the other, you know, that can happen. A small change at the very beginning of your manuscript may turn into a huge tidal wave that washes away the last act of your book Mm -hmm. a week before it's due. This always used to happen to me actually during the writing process as I would start writing and then I'd get like halfway through my book and just decide that something should be completely different. And rather than starting over, I would just change it from that point on. (laughs) And I'd be like, well, I'll go back to the beginning and fix it later. Uh, But I never did end up doing that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, you know, you go through your structural edits and your line edits, repeat ad nauseum as many Mm -hmm. times as needed. And then finally, you, you and your editor have come to an agreement everything you know you've done the story isn't is in good shape it mm-hmm. is in its final form yeah the manuscript is accepted if you yes. remember your terms from the contracting last week yes so the manuscript is accepted and at this point your manuscript gets transmitted to production oh god transmittal <laughs> transmittal is <laughs> kind of annoying it's the worst uh, it's, the, it's just it the is. physical act of it like whoever's responsible for transmitting the manuscript to production it's just it's the worst <laughs> I, I was responsible for that at one point in my career and i'm not sorry that it's no longer in my in my responsibilities yeah um so at least how did i do it um if it was a straight-up work of fiction it wasn't so bad right you would for some reason you always had to print out three copies of the manuscript. Mm-hmm. So if you were transmitting like four or five manuscripts one day, it's just a nightmare because you're just standing by the copier. Getting waiting. dirty looks from everyone else who <laughs> needs to use it. <laughs> and um, you had three. Uh, you would print out three copies of the manuscript. Two would go to the production editor. And one would you would keep for your own files. You had to save it onto a disc. Um... For the Library of Congress, I believe, that was at least what we were told. If there was any artwork or illustrations or photos, those would also have to be transmitted. Mm-hmm. Along with uh, the proper permissions. Permissions and the art logs, uh, which which is just basically a list that cross-references, um, you know... The the number like you you've numbered each of the artwork or you've numbered the photos and you say goes 
table one on X page. And, mm-hmm. you know, depending on how heavily illustrated the book is, it could be extremely time consuming. Yes. Um, and you also have production estimates. Now, that's sort of kind of the in-house, what you do when you transmit a manuscript to production. Now, this probably has no meaning for an author because they'll, they'll never know about this. Or they no. won't see this Mm-mm. part of the process. No, none of this has anything to do with you guys. Um, but basically this is now that the manuscript is final and accepted, this is the point where it turns from the idea you wrote, the, the book you wrote that was in your head. And this is the beginning of the process that turns it into a physical book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so production is exactly what it sounds like. It is the process by which a manuscript gets turned into a book. The, you know, you're producing a product. And so at this point, you know, you have, you make production estimates. Your editor will be doing this, not you, obviously. You know, they, you know, we often have these sort of Excel formulas and things like that. You would say this many words and it will come out at this trim size will come out roughly to about this many pages. Right. Um, and this is sort of kind of, for people who are Ravenclaw nerds uh, like myself and like to know these sort of details. Um, but, you know, so every book is printed in signatures. Signatures are these... It's, it's Basically, it's a huge sheet of paper that gets sort of folded up and cut into groups of 16. So every So every book, you'll notice is actually a multiple of 16 pages. Mm-hmm. So that's why you see sometimes that books have blank pages in the back because it didn't quite fill up an entire signature. Um, so, you know, you calculate the number of words that go into that, you know, if it's a hundred thousand word book, it generally comes out to be like 402 pages. Um, and that calculates how many signatures that is at which trim size. Now, if you also notice now, these are all things that you and your production editor, if you're the acquiring editor, you have a meeting uh, with your production editor. Um, usually it's every season when you're getting ready to launch your book. You sit down, you talk to the production editor, and this is what you talk about the physical product of the book. You talk about the paper stock you want to use. You talk about the trim size, and the trim size is basically just like the size of your book. Mm-hmm. If you go into a bookstore, you'll notice that some books are just bigger, mm-hmm. like often hardcovers or what we call six by nines. I think it's like six and a quarter by nine and a half or something like that. Right. Inches. Um, uh, that's generally kind of the standard hardcover trim size. Paperbacks are generally five by eight. Mm-hmm. That's just sort of like industry things. But, you know, these are all things that the author and, or the, sorry, the editor and the production editor will talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll talk about whether or not, they want uh, sort of chapter headings, like illustrated chapter headings. They will talk about, um, you know, so like that the sort of physical product. Or at this point, you talk about whether or not something has deckled edges, which mm-hmm. I love. You know, if you actually look at a book and you see this sort of like ragged trim, mm-hmm. I love that. Like and actually, all books um, are made with deckle edges, and then it's like lasered or cut off to give you the yeah. straight edges. But that's the deckle is just a natural process of the book printing. The way it's done, it just always happens on every book. 
Yep. So, and I, I like, I actually like this process kind of a lot because you can sort of make executive, you, you can, you can, I, I, it's hard to explain. I like the physical process of making a book and maybe cause I am sort of hands-on, you know, I like to draw and paint and, and things like, and craft, I'm kind of, I'm crafty. Like I like using my hands. So this part of the process I really always enjoyed. So that's kind of the beginning of the transmittal process. Um, so after you've trans, after the editor has transmitted it to production, then production usually assigns a copy editor. Mm-hmm. Now remember when we said earlier that the editor only does really structural edits and line edits, but not copy edits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, copy edits is actually what most people think about or think of first when they think, "Oh, this is an editor." Right. Or this is what an editor does. Copy editors are the ones who sit down and make sure your manuscript adheres to the proper grammatical styles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use, it's Chicago. Chicago, Chicago manual style. style. Yes. Um, and this is where you will, the produ- the uh, copy editor will go through and make sure you don't have any dangling modifiers or you, know, mm-hmm. you don't end on a preposition or, you know, the sort of rules of grammar that you learned and mostly forgot, mm-hmm. um, or choose to ignore yes. as, <laughs> uh, I, as, as I did. And I'm sure, cause I haven't gotten my copy edits back yet and I'm sure it will be riddled yes. with, with notations. <laughs> the thing about copy editing is that it's, it's not just for super detail oriented people and people who are incredibly focused and incredibly intelligent and, um, dedicated. I mean, copy editors are just like my hats off to you. Uh, as I think I mentioned a couple podcasts ago, I'm currently taking a copy editing class because well, my basic grammar is good and I'm a good speller. Like a lot of people, I get really lazy on the internet. And so I've had like several years of being really lazy and just kind of typing fast and not caring how correct things are when I write them. And then beyond just the simple grammar and spelling that everyone knows, copy editing has a whole deeper level of more nuanced things that never, you know, the rules of capitalization in various circumstances and just other things that aren't even coming to my mind right now, but there are so many minute, specific details and the Chicago manual style is massive and it has sections for every eventuality, like any exception or strange circumstance you can think of is covered in this book. It's amazing. Um, so really you should, you know, be extra kind to your copy editors because the work that they do is, I think they're kind of the unsung heroes of the process, but I, I think, yeah, they definitely are. And in addition to the stylistic grammar choices that they will sort of oversee, they also do things like, um, you know, the sun rose twice today. Right. Or they, they will flag really small inconsistencies that your editor may have missed, mm-hmm. um, you know, or didn't see because, you know, they're very small. They're yes. very, very small. Um, so they're looking to make sure that your manuscript is internally consistent. It's really um, going through it with a fine tooth comb and catching mm-hmm. every little thing. Mm-hmm. 
And also at this point, if you're writing a work of nonfiction, uh, this is also when your manuscript goes to legal. Mm -hmm. And they will give it a legal read to see if there's any issues that may arise. Yeah, a risk assessment and fact-checking. And and so that's, so, you know, copy edits, we have production schedules in a publishing house that usually kind of break down how long it should take. This is why there's a deadline in your contract. Because usually when your editor has acquired the manuscript, he or she will have an idea of when he or she would like to publish your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we'll get to that a little bit later in the segment um, about launch, essentially. But, you know, there's a production schedule, and you have a leeway, give or take, probably about four to six weeks. You know, if something gets held up or lost or things like that, you know, you, you've kind of built in some padding there to make sure that everything gets done in time for your scheduled season publication season. Um, but so once your copy editor goes through and copy edits your manuscript, you get it back as an author, you see it back. And this is the point where you should go through your manuscript with a fine tooth comb, Mm -hmm. um, and agree or disagree with any of the changes your copy editor suggests. There is, you do not have to accept all of their changes because you may choose to ignore certain rules of grammar for, for your own stylistic purposes. You know, Uh you may have a character who doesn't speak grammatical English Uh for a reason, or, you know, you may have this sort of sentence style that's very short and punchy and incomplete sentences, Uh but you know, the little things like that, or, it just may sound better, even if something isn't grammatically correct. It just may sound better when read aloud. Mm-hmm. You know, those are all things that you do not have to accept the copy editor's changes. Um, and you can, and when you don't agree with a change, uh, that's what the word "stet" is for. It means keep as is. So, as opposed to accepting your copy editor's change, you would write "stet" next to that and say, "No, I want to keep my original text the mm-hmm. way it was before." Um, now copy editing itself is such a fine art because again, you don't want to impinge on the writer's voice, but you Mm -hmm. also want to correct things that are either just incorrect period. Um, or, you know, you want to correct the grammar for clarity's sake. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yep. You know, you, you know, just, if you have a lot of pronouns on the page and it's unclear who's speaking, then your copy editor may suggest, you know, putting the name of the character in one or two spots or, you Mm -hmm. know, little things like that. Little things like that. Yeah. And a lot of times too, copy editors will either create or request that the author create a style sheet to work from. Um, so if you have a character who speaks in dialect, so Hagrid from Harry Potter does not speak in proper English. He has his own, you know, kind of little dialect with letters left off and added in. And, um, they're, you know, if the copy editor is not going to go through and correct all of Hagrid's lines, because that's the way that that character is meant to sound. So a style sheet was probably created. So the copy editor can refer to it anytime Hagrid is speaking and look and see, Oh, nope, this is the way that this is supposed to be. You know, and maybe even make it consistent and make sure every time he speaks, he speaks in the same type of dialect. Um, but, you know, so you can create style sheets for things like that. Or if there's, if you have a manuscript that uses a lot of special terminology, um, 
that you want to make sure that the copy editor is following your specific terminology, you can create a style sheet for that. Um, so that's something that they can use too to help keep the writer's voice intact. Yes. And often actually you, you yourself, even if you haven't created a style guide, you'll receive one with your copy edits because mm-hmm. the copy editor will create one. You know, if, if they found, you know, for example, you've spelled that your main character's name two different ways, like right. you've left the E off here a couple of times, but the E is back in here a couple of times. Sometimes the copy editor will make an executive decision or note that, you know, and in the style guide, it would say that it would show you, you know, they made this decision about mm-hmm. how the name was going to be spelled. Um, which again, you can stat and, you know, point out, no, this is actually how it should be spelled and it should be consistent throughout the book. And also at this stage too, you can make changes to your text that are not your copy editor suggestions. Like if you're reading your manuscript and you decide, oh, I want to add just one little line here for, you know, for clarification, you can do that. Mm. But (laughs) if you look at your contract, it will say something like, no more than 10% can be new mm-hmm. from your final draft. So like little changes you can still get away with, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a line or two. I mean, I've, I've had authors do that as well. Like the copy edits come in and they wanted to add a paragraph at the ending or, you know, a line here and a line there, you know, as the changes altogether amounted to maybe less than two pages. Um, you know, so it's, you can still tinker away a little bit at the copy mm. edit stage. <laughs> If you absolutely must, <laughs> if yes, it's if dire, you well, you and know. also if it is more than ten percent of your text, they will have to go through copy edits again, again, and, and that, that pushes costs more money. it costs more money. It pushes your your behind schedule at that point, and the schedule really is. Um, important because there's so many things that factor into it because I used to be like, Oh, well, you know, who cares if we push it off? It's not a big deal, but so many things are already set up in advance. And like, for example, um, Amazon feeds, like when you're submitting the book and the cover and the title and the author info to Amazon so that they can get the pre-orders up and everything. And the same thing with Barnes and Noble and other stores, they all need that by a certain deadline so that they can prepare it for their websites and their, sales materials. And so they're really strict about those deadlines. Also and so, printing. Yeah. You printing. have to reserve printing space at the printers, something like six months in advance. And you have to buy that spot. And if you don't make it, you're, you're shit out of luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it is very important that you, you be timely. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously if you, you know, Something happens, some horrible thing happens, and you are unable to turn your copy edits around, um, or you know the dog ate like the last twenty five pages. I don't know. Tell your editor as soon as possible, mm-hmm. because then they will go to production and talk to how much time that they have, what le- you know, like what they can sort of shift around. What is the absolute last day they can get this in to still make your publication date? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but okay, so let's say you go through your copy edits, yep. everything is good, everyone's agreed, you send them back to your publisher. At this point, it goes from the copy editor to the designer. Now, mm-hmm. the designer is not the cover designer, because we'll cover that slightly separately. We're still just talking about the text of the book here. The designer 
is somebody who designs the look of your book on every page. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones that choose what font face, font type that your book will be printed in. This is weird typography nerds like myself. <laughs> get really nerdy about this, and they love discussing typography. And um, But they they will design your book. And this is, they use a program, industry standard anyway, is InDesign, Adobe InDesign. Mm -hmm. Um, And they will, you know, make sure that the text flows, looks right. And this is at the point where the chapter chapter headings are put in, if Mm -hmm. there's artwork for that kind of a thing. Um, And so they'll print them out and generate what is called first pass pages. Now, your first pass pages are what your galleys or ARCs or advanced reader copies are printed from. That's kind of the first time your book is laid out to look like a book. Mm-hmm. So you get these sort of like 11 by 14 sheets of paper with your kind of with two pages on each sheet and it looks like a book laid out in front of you. Mm-hmm. Now, your first pass pages are generally the last time you're going to see your book before it's a physical book. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you see second pass pages. Um, d- again, this actually can depend from house to house. It could also depend on how many changes that there were during mm-hmm. your first pass pages. It could, you know, this is sort of the last chance you have to make certain changes. Again, the same thing applies to the copy edit stage. You don't want to change more than 10% of the text. You know, you want to change as absolutely as little bit as possible. Now, this is the time you're going to look at your first pass pages for what we call rivers, widows, and orphans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's kind of hard to explain just describing it to you in audio because I, I really have to show you to see what it looks like. But, you know, when the text is is laid out and you, there's space between the words... And somehow those words all line up in such a way that there's like a white line down the middle of the page. Mm-hmm. Is that's what we call a river. And so you will actually call that out. Um, and your designer will adjust the letting, which is the space between the letters, to get rid of those. Because rivers are kind of make it hard to read text on a piece of paper. Um Orphans are basically, you know, you get to the end of a paragraph and there's like one word. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's an orphan. And again, it just makes it kind of hard to read. It breaks up the visual symmetry of the page. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you call that out. It's disruptive to your, you know, you're going along, you're reading, and then it jars you. It kind of knocks you out of your your reading, your headspace. And I can't exactly remember what widows were. Um, But I think it's just like, there's a word and it's hard to tell where it's supposed to be because it looks like it's out of context or floating or, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's divorced from the context. You don't actually know what the word is for. So I think that's essentially what the widow is. So that's actually what, you, so you're looking at not just the words as words, you're looking at the words as, as text, they physically as, appear on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so First pass pages look good. You know, you're also checking typos because, you know, typos can happen. You know, you're importing the text from, Mm -hmm. um, you know, your manuscript into InDesign and, you know, typos happen. And, you know, so you want to look for those too. Um, So you see those, you know, you make a note of them 
at, again, at this point, if you make any changes, they have to be extremely small. Um, you know, usually, I usually recommend my authors, if they like to do this, to read the manuscript aloud mm-hmm. now. Because you notice so much more when you read something aloud than when you're just reading it in your own head. You'll notice the skipped words. You will notice when something sounds awkward. You will notice, at least in my case, because I write very long, when a sentence is going on too long. (laughs) When you have to take five breaths in the middle of one sentence, you know that sentence is too long. Mm -hmm. You know, you break it up. You break up the rhythm of your words. And this is also when you notice your sentence lengths. And I don't necessarily mean like the really long ones like myself, but you vary the length of your sentences in order to, you know, to break up monotony. Like a a bad, quote-unquote, bad writer doesn't have any variation in his or her sentence length. Right. Uh, or sentence structure or anything like that. So this is kind of the point where you're looking at it as a variation, and when you read it out loud, you'll hear that. You'll hear your own rhythms, and you'll hear your actual voice. So I always recommend... When people get their first pass pages back to, to read their books aloud. And if your audio rights have sold, this is also the, the text that your audiobook narrator will be working from. So again, if you have any sort of final changes and things like that, make sure you do note those or you do correct those before you send them back. So that's kind of the first pass pages aspect of it. So once you get that back, your designer will... You know, make note of all your changes if there are any. Reflow the text. Um, you you probably won't see second pass, but mm-hmm. your editor will, and other production editors will, and they'll they'll look at the manuscript again. Now, your manuscript at every stage of the process is going through at least three pairs of eyes, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it's going to be flawless. <laughs> no, you, we've all read we've get, all yeah. read books and found a typo in them. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that's what you change it on the next print run. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, stuff like that happens. Mm-hmm. Even though it's been through seven pairs of eyes, something just gets missed. It's just human. So you get used to that. So after that, so after second pass or final pass, sometimes as it's called, is generated, um, generally at this point, all the other parts of the book are coming together before it's sent off to the printer. Uh, and your book gets printed into the final product. So at this point of the production process, your editor, in addition to meeting with their production editor, will also be meeting with the cover department, mm-hmm. the marketing department, and the publicity department. But kind of before we get to that point, or they'll be doing it concurrently, because in-house, the sort of big sort of the start where the book starts for everyone except your editor is at what we call launch the launch meeting Mm -hmm. so up to this point or at least up till launch the people who have dealt with your manuscript is going to be the editorial department of the publishing house the ones that you know either read it when they were when they were acquiring your manuscript your editor who's working with the text and the author directly Um, and then, so kind of on the remove yourself from the editorial side of things and there are the other departments you have marketing, publicity, and the sales force. Mm -hmm. 
And every publishing house has three to four launch meetings a year. One generally for each season. So you have winter, spring, summer, and fall. Most books get assigned a season. Mm -hmm. Now, the seasons can be different from house to house. My publisher has three seasons. They have winter, which is January through March. Really more like January through April. Mm -hmm. Spring, summer. Spring, summer is one. Yeah. And then And that generally runs May through uh, end of August and fall, which is September through December. Now, assigning a book to a season just sort of is often by instinct. (laughs) Like the decision to publish a book spring, summer generally is it feels like a beachy read mm-hmm. or it's um it or if it's nonfiction, it's it's timely for new graduates or it'd be a fun father's day gift or you know mm-hmm. those are reasons why you would schedule a book in the summer um fall tends to be reserved more for um kind of weightier books mm-hmm Books that are heavier, either in subject matter, darker in tone. Uh, this is also the season when your the big books come out. So mm-hmm. most big titles from the big publishing houses come out in the fall. Yeah, most lead titles are fall books. Um, and um, yeah, you know, and yeah. you'll get to like a lot of the, as you said, the darker or the creepier for the Halloween push. You know, the gothic mm-hmm. or the horror or um, back to school for the fall, you know, Mm -hmm. you'll get a lot of, a lot of things like that. So it, you kind of, you can look at a book and, and it will make sense to you where it should be. Yeah. About what time of year you think this should, this should go. Now, what books get published in the winter is kind of everything else. Now I don't want to belittle the books that get published in the winter season at all. Um, but you know, those are the sort of raison d'etre for publishing a book in the summer or fall is, you know, you decide this is going to be like a commercial beachy read that people pick up on their vacation. Um, or this is a weightier title, or this is a title that we want to put a big push behind is generally mm-hmm. going to go in the fall. And a lot of the other books fall in the winter because there's no timely aspect to it. There's no right. Time it could be published at any time. Yes. Um, and often winter is a great time to be published because you're not competing against all the big titles if you're being published in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the other sort of really super commercial titles that are being published in the summer. So um, so that's basically the explaining the seasons um, that go. And so uh, publishers have a launch meeting per season. Uh, this is when their catalogs get ready. This So this is the point when the editor takes your book to everyone else. So now it leaves the editorial department and gets presented to marketing, publicity, and sales. This is going to be the first time, not always, but generally for the majority of the sales and marketing department, this is going to be the first time they've heard of your book. Yeah, they might have been present at the acquisitions meeting sometimes, um, but it's been a long time since the acquisition meeting in terms of, you know, publishing schedules. It's been quite a while by the time you get to launch. So if it's not the exact first time they've heard of it, and it might be, it, they definitely haven't heard of it in a long time. So this is yep. the refresher. 
Um, so, you know, and, and they're sitting here and they're listening and, you know, they're hearing the editor pitch the book to them um, and sort of making note about which accounts they think they can sell this book to. Or, and marketing will, will think about, oh, you know, this is how we can present the book to the public. And publicity will be thinking about, oh, I know which outlets to send this to to see if they can get, you know, any reviews or things like, or any coverage. Um, you know, this is the first time that they're hearing about your book and they're sort of sitting there and they're kind of coming up with their own thoughts about how to get your book out into the world. That isn't just the physical side of things. Um, so now after launch is, you know, generally concurrently production and launch, like you will transmit the, the book right before you launch a book, or at least that's what a lot of editors do for debuts because, they go into to launch, or at least I did. I'd go into launch and be like, hey, here's this great manuscript. It's final. It's up on our internal server. So if you guys want to take a read, you can download it to your e-readers and read this book. It's about this. Um, and the editor will have to pitch the book to everybody at launch. So they'll go up and they'll come up with their list of sales points. Like, this author wrote a book about clowns. And... <laughs> I don't know. This author wrote a book about clowns and, you know, in their sales points, they'll be like this, you know, they used to be part of a circus. So they know a lot about the life of clowns or clowns are really timely in the market now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, they, they come up with reasons why they want the sales and marketing team to get behind your book. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily have to be like, this is a really great book. Everyone should read it because, as, as much as we want that to work, <laughs> it, you can't do that for every book. You, this mm-hmm. is when your book turns from words and a story to a product. So right. They're going to be thinking about how to position this product in the marketplace. So I always, you know, it, it's hard for a lot of writers to do, but trying to separate your story from how it's, you know, being produced as a product is really hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to take that personally sometimes, but it is what it is. It's a business. In addition to a story, you're presenting a product to the world. You're commoditizing art, which always gonna is going to come with its own problems, but you know, they're looking about how to position your book to the marketplace. Um, so now this is also the fun part. In addition to production, um, this is where you're the, now the cover, the art department will mm-hmm. come up with your cover. Um, so usually at this at the launch meeting is when they'll hear of your book and they get their own ideas. Now, ideally, you will have a cover designer who has read your book. Mm-hmm. Um, but like so many of everyone else in publishing, they just don't have time to read everything. Right. Um, so again, this this your editor has to be the one who pitches the book correctly. You know, mm-hmm. has to be like. You know, say you wrote this, you know, cozy mystery and your editor didn't pitch it correctly and say you get a cover comp that looks like some sort of really dark thriller, then, you know, it's not hitting the right market and the the cover's not hitting the right feel. So it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of a lot of back and forth and making, this is what editors mean when, if they reject you, when they say, I don't know how to publish this often means as well, I don't know how to categorize this book easily. I don't know, I can't create a space in the market easily for this book. 
I don't know how to pitch it to everybody else in editorial board. Like you have a, you know, and, and many, and many genre defying books get published every day. Oh, so clearly of there are editors who know how to do this and there are editors who know how to conceive and how to pitch a book to their marketing force, but that's not every editor. It's not every project. So, you know, it's kind of, you're weighing that back and forth. So that's the cover part. And, you know, I did cover marketing and policy a little bit, which, to be completely frank, I don't necessarily have a lot to add about marketing and publicity. Um, marketing and publicity, I feel like I feel like we should have a publicist on. I have a friend who's a publicist, and maybe we'll invite her to be a guest and talk more about that, because I feel like there's a lot of stuff that goes on, and then nobody really knows about it. Yeah. Because the, the marketing and publicity is, is about, you know, getting the word out about your book, but it's like you re you read the review that comes out as a result of, you know, your publicist securing that review for you. But it's like, but you read the review, you don't see all the work that the publicist does. So I feel like it's like a behind the scenes curtain kind of kind of a job. They're very mysterious and talented and savvy people, but you know, I just, I don't really know what they do. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would agree because honestly, uh, I wouldn't hear about publicity's plans for books that I've launched until after the book has been published. So sometimes I'd just be like, Oh, okay. I guess that's what you guys are doing. Uh, good to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Mallory, I'm coming for you. I'm going to call you Mallory. We'll see if we can get you on here uh, to, to enlighten us all about publicity. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, and then, you know, after your book goes through all that, it goes to the printer and it becomes a real product. Yes. It, it gets shipped to stores um, it, and to Amazon warehouses and mm -hmm. it becomes a book that you can buy a physical product that you can buy. And that's the sort of process that takes it from your brain to something that you see on the bookstore shelves. You know, there's a lot of people involved, <laughs> uh, a lot more people involved than, than people think. Um, so this is sort of the behind the scenes look at the nuts and bolts of traditional publishing. Um, obviously self-publishing again would be different. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't imagine it's all that different in smaller presses or indie presses either. Um, you know, everyone has a catalog, seasons yep. and, and things like that. Um, yep. the catalog Every book gets a cover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, and, and just to clarify what the catalog is. So every publisher, every season creates catalog of their books and it's exactly what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like, you know, the Sears catalog. Do they yep. make a Sears catalog? They must. They must. You know, what comes to my mind, too, is always, again, the Scholastic Book Fair catalogs. Yes. Like, you'd, in elementary school, you'd have that little catalog that you could take home to your parents, and they could check off which ones they were going to buy. Um, it's exactly like that. And so all the various buyers across the country, that the buyers are not the consumer. The buyers are the people who are buying stock for their bookstores, will get these catalogs. You know, and see what's coming out from every publisher in every season and, you know, see, oh, you know, this sounds great. Our, our customers will probably like that. And they'll place their orders for whatever books that are coming out. 
Um, and, and the bigger and the bigger accounts, you have actual sales representatives going out to the field to pitch mm-hmm. the biggest books every season to each buyer to con- yep. try and convince them to take as many copies as possible for the, the bookstore to give it a push in store. This is also, this falls under the aegis of marketing a little bit, but you know, about getting like front end placement or co-op as we call it. When the book gets face out, like on a front table mm-hmm. at Barnes and Noble, that's co-op. You know, you see the book in the book, you know, kind of face out first thing. Um, so that's sort of all the stuff that kind of happens. And these are all agreed upon before your book even gets to the bookshelves. Um, so really publication in some ways is kind of an afterthought, <laughs> not to the author, obviously, but as far as the publishing, like physical publishing process goes, once the book is published, you know, you know the production doesn't have anything to do with it anymore. And it, it's yeah, all the work builds thing. to that moment. You know, everyone is working to get that book made. And then once it's made, it's kind of like. You know, it's like your child has grown up and is leaving the nest and has to make it out there on their own in the world. You've done the best you can for it, you know, but publishing is really all about building to that moment. Um, All that work is done before anyone else in the wider world has ever seen the book or before it exists. And and that's why when you get traditionally published, it takes so long. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's always like, why? Why does it need to take that mm-hmm. long? And to be frank, it's because it goes through all these processes. And mm-hmm. you know, because it's still tied, at least traditional publishing is still tied to print. And that's why it takes that long. Now, and not only that, but your book isn't the only one going through this multi-step process. There could be 20, 30, depending on the imprint other books going through that same process with that same group of people. Yes, there's more than one editor, you know, yes, there's more than one cover designer and so on and so forth. And they'll all have their own projects, but each editor is working on more than one book. Each cover designer is working on more than one book. And so, you know, it's really about launching the whole catalog at once. So your book isn't the only one out there. There's many others as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a seasonal thing. Again, self-publishing, and if you're not putting out a physical copy of your self-published book, you don't have to worry about that. That's why it could be much quicker. That's why the publication schedule could be far quicker than it is in traditional publishing. So I think that more or less covers it, Mm -hmm. you know, inside and out. Um, I think... It's a good idea to get your friend Mallory on because I can't really answer any publicity <laughs> questions. <laughs> I I really have I got nothing I I got nothing. Um, and I the will. Same thing I'll with reach marketing. out to her and and see because I think that would be a great podcast topic. Would be publicity. Yeah, and um, what the publishing house does and what the author can do and and things like that. I think would be a great idea. So that wraps it up. If you guys have any questions and if stuff we've said is confusing or doesn't make sense, you could always email us or ask us on Tumblr and we'll try and answer the questions as best we can. Mm-hmm. It, I know it's a lot of information to take in. So, you know, go ahead and, and ask us to, to clarify whatever didn't make any sense to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
All right, so let's blow through our recommendations. We've already gone over an hour, so we're going to mm-hmm. try to to wrap up our rambling tem- tendencies. But you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for four episodes by now, you know that <laughs> we like to talk. <laughs> that yeah, we're not we're not the uh, the briefest speakers in the world. But JJ, what are you reading lately? I am, you know, aside from Hemingway, <laughs> uh, I'm not actually reading anything new. Uh, I'm in creative mode. Mm-hmm. So when I'm in creative mode, I can't necessarily read anything. Yeah. Um, it, you know, when I'm drafting in particular, I can't read. I can, I can read any other time. I can read before I write something and after I write something. But when I'm drafting a book, I can't. You can't have any competing voices in your head. Yeah, and there's it it just I just don't have the mental space for it because reading isn't a passive activity. No. Know? Reading is a conversation between the reader and the text, and I just I can't. I I, can't, I only have enough space to have conversation with my own text. Mm-hmm. So everything else is just going to get put off uh, until the book gets finished, or at least I have my proposal and pages to send to my agent. So I'm, I'm not reading anything new aside from Hemingway. <laughs> so what about you? What are you reading? Um, I just the other night finished up The Secret History by Donna Tartt, which is a reread for me. I've read it before. Um, it was this month's Books and Bars uh, selection. Books and Bars is a book club that is held in a bar. Uh, in the city of Minneapolis, if you live in the Twin Cities, there's one in Minneapolis and one in St. Paul. They do it twice a month. Um, and if you live in the Twin Cities, you need to be attending this book club. It is phenomenal. Um, at Books and Bars on Twitter, uh, you can follow them there. So The Secret History was their selection. Uh, excellent book. Absolutely loved it. I loved rereading it this time around, too. Yay. Uh, so are, are you working on anything creative? Yeah. I have not really been working on anything creative lately other than this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I have so many things in the works that I, that I'm excited about. And and one of them is actually a writing project and I'm really excited about it. And I hope to make it a real thing, but as of right now, it only exists in my head. Yeah. Aside from reading or aside from writing my middle grade, I don't know if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that I've, made a lot of Inktober posts, um, sort of getting back into drawing and sketching, which I've sort of let fall by the wayside. Um, this is, for me in particular, when I'm drafting, it's a way for me to siphon off the excess thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I often draw my characters. I um, it, It's a way for me to, to conceptualize them. It's it, In a funny way, it's it's for me to get to know who they are. Like, I don't really know who my characters are, are until I've drawn them. And it's by no means a definitive representation of what they look like. Um, and in fact, if you read mo- most of my books, I don't actually describe my characters all that much. Like, I don't really give physical descriptors aside from, like, ethnicity, hair, eyes, and that's mm-hmm. kind of it. Um, I don't linger on on physical details so much on in words but I do it in my mind or I do it uh, when I draw and it just gives me a better picture of how they move how they interact with people what they and and sometimes in a funny way when I draw 
little quirks of personality come to me in the drawing that I didn't know, but then I can incorporate them back into the text. Like, for example, I kept drawing my magical girl protagonist with glasses, but she doesn't have bad eyesight. But she just has glasses, and I realize, oh, she just puts them on to make herself look clever. <laughs> They're her clever specs. It's not that she needs them, she just wears them to, to make herself look smart. So, like, little things like that just kind of come to me when I draw. Mm-hmm. So, in addition to drafting, that, that's, that's what I'm working on. So, uh, Do you have any off-menu recommendations this week? So very, very off menu. Um, the thing that I am currently obsessed with <laughs> are, uh, Evan Healy skincare products. Um, mm. yes, I'm super, super obsessed with them. So I've been really lucky in my whole life. I've had really great skin. I never really had a lot of terrible breakouts as a teenager. I mean, I got the occasional I zit. You. I know, I know. <laughs> I got the occasional zit, but really it, although it felt catastrophic at the time, it really was not, um, And I've been very fortunate in that respect. Uh, And then I got pregnant and my hormones went all crazy and uh, my skin has changed. And while it's still probably better than average, um, you know, I'm getting older and I, you know, my skin is just different now than it used to be. And so I figured, oh, you know, I should probably like start taking care of it. Maybe like I never, I mean, I'm telling you, I used to splash some water on my face in the shower and that was it. Like I didn't have a cleanser or a toner or like I didn't do anything, anything with my skin up until now. And it was really daunting to me because I feel like everything that I've read online, you need like 75 different products and it's this multi-step thing. And I... I just have never been um, willing to invest that much time in my morning routine and to getting ready for the day. I really need something that I can just kind of do and go. And so I was really disappointed. And then I heard about these products um, from a friend of mine uh, who has phenomenal skin. And I was like, well, her face looks pretty great, so I'll give it a try. <laughs> uh, and they're spendy. They are expensive. So if any of you are looking it up right now and looking at the prices and having a miniature heart attack, I apologize. Um, but you know, as they all say, a little bit goes a long way. I bought a test kit of, you know, all the various products, uh, in little mini sizes so that you could test it out. And it said it's supposed to last for two weeks and I'm going on a month now and I still have a little bit left in each bottle. Um, I love it. It's all natural. It's a company owned by a woman. Um, you know, she, uh, goes out of her way to try to work with, other women to source her ingredients. Um, most of her ingredients are certified organic, although I don't think all of them are. Um, but it's just a really, they're really great products and I've been really happy with them. And I feel like I've noticed a difference in just the little bit of time that I have, uh, been using them. It's about three weeks now. So, uh, very off menu, very strange. Uh, but at 33 years old for the first time in my life, I'm starting a skincare routine. So (laughs) that's been kind of exciting. (laughs) I hate all you people who are lucky to have good skin in your youth because I had, I had horrible skin. I had cystic acne. So it just, you know, it was horrible. It was awful all the way through like my early, early twenties. I just had really awful skin. Um, and at some point, I think my hormones finally just calmed down. Like puberty hit me like a train wreck though. (laughs) So 
like the years between like 14 and 20 were just awful. <laughs> it's like I was hit by the plague. My formerly straight hair just went all wild and wavy and weird and frizzy on me. I developed you know, cystic acne, and I went from being completely flat-chested to, like, a double D, like, overnight. It was just, I just hit in the face with puberty. It was awful. Um, <laughs> I have had a pretty diligent skincare routine since I was a teenager. Plus, uh-huh. my mom is Korean, and, um, you know, everyone always says, like, oh, you know, Asian women have beautiful skin. Uh, some of it may be natural, but Asian women are taught to take care of their skin. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, and your mother has gorgeous skin. <laughs> she does a very beautiful skin. Um, and, uh, my, as a, my 25th birthday gift, she gave me anti-aging cream. <laughs> and I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I have had a skincare routine since I was very, very young and it, it's just habit for me. And, um, but you know, like, Nowadays, a lot of people do come up to me and say, oh, you have really beautiful skin. And I was like, well, thank you, because you don't know how horrible it used to be. <laughs> I earned it. I, yeah, I freaking earned this, okay? <laughs> um, <gasps> I have just one off-menu recommendation today, and it actually kind of ties into some of the stuff we've been discussing earlier uh, in previous podcasts, off-menu recommendations, but it is actually another podcast. It's called Blood Sucking Feminists. <laughs> that sounds that amazing. amazing. I need to subscribe to that immediately. Um, I love it. It's these two women. Uh, one is a Kiwi uh, from New Zealand, and the other one is a Scottish young lady. And they just—they actually cover vampire tropes. Really? Hence blood sucking. Yes. Hence, hence the blood sucking aspect of it. And they also. Um, do it, you know, sort of from a feminist perspective, clearly, because that's the other part of their, their title. And, um, this past week they just covered Twilight. That's their most recent episode. But I was so excited because, uh, they're both Tanster Vampire fans. (laughs) And that is what they're going to be covering next month. So as you might remember, that was the very first off-menu recommendation I had given was, uh, my obsession with Tanster Vampire, and mm-hmm. um, they will be covering Tanster Vampire. Um, I I really enjoy it. They they cover vampire tropes from a feminist perspective, but they also you know they they've covered the big the the sort of Western canon of vampire literature. So they started with Carmilla uh, by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu mm-hmm. and Dracula and um, the Vampire by Polidori. So they sort of cover the the text and the history, and they and they cover you know the vampire tropes, what they mean, and all sorts of other vampire media. So if you're like a vampire junkie, which weirdly enough I am not, <laughs> I am not a huge fan of vampires. Well, I am, but not the way a lot of other people are. Um, but if but if you are at all a fan of vampires, they do an excellent job covering the tropes from a feminist and honestly like an academic perspective as well so that is my off menu recommendation for today fantastic so i think that's it Mm -hmm. Um, so next time next week we'll be talking about what happens after your book gets published um sort of 
the life of your book after it's on the shelves. Mm-hmm. You know, so what the author can do and, and, and everything else. So we had sort of the, the post-publication uh, podcast. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more Pub Call goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at sjjones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website at sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, publishing crawl contributor and author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. 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 I feel like just bursting out into song in your absence. I could start singing Hamilton. No, I couldn't because nobody wants to uh, hear my sad, sad approximation of rap. It's not good. <laughs> it's not good. I will leave that to to the experts. Thank you.